Let us open our copies of God's Word to the first chapter of Ephesians. It has been about four, somewhere between four and five years since I have preached through Ephesians, and I'm not doing that uh, again presently, but I want us to look uh, at some verses that are of such encouragement and so necessary for us to understand as Christians, but they are the verses in Ephesians chapter 1 that typically are skimmed when Christians read these, uh, these verses because they're very heady, uh, they're very full, they're very rich, and sometimes we simply do not take the time that we should and we will this morning to meditate upon. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 1, and our focus will be really upon verses 9, 10, 11, and somewhat on 12. However, I think that it would be wise for us to begin reading at verse 3. Verses 3 through 14 are actually one sentence in the Greek New Testament without intervening mark of punctuation. So it will help us to have the context. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, how good is our God and how wondrous is thy name. And we are filled with praise and adoration for the goodness that is shown to us even this morning and the opportunity that we have as Christians to worship the triune God and also, Father, to open the word that is given to us out of love that we may, as Christians, have this map unto the celestial city. And we have not been left to ourselves nor to our own devices, but with, with great grace and mercy, a part of thy plan for us was that we hear this word, even the word that we will hear this morning. Grow us in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give to us humility before the word. Give to us hearts that desire to obey. And Heavenly Father, may Christ be exalted in every life, young and old, here. We also pray that those who may be here that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we pray so often that in every service and even today, those who do not know Christ would be drawn out of darkness and into light. Bless the preaching of the Word in this place and in this dark world throughout the globe We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and stand, beginning at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. This is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now look again, beginning at maybe the middle of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, people of God, you will notice in your bulletin that there's a title, the title, God's Plan for the Ages, and you might think that's an audacious title, and it would be very audacious were God's plan for the ages not revealed to us in the text that we have just read and in other portions of the Word of God. But we do have his plan for the ages. Remarkable though it seems, God has revealed his plan for the ages to the people of God. And now immediately that says that God has a plan, that there is therefore purpose in the universe, purpose in the world, and purpose in our lives, and that history is actually going somewhere. By contrast, the day in which we live, the culture around us, is characterized by a sense of aimlessness and purposelessness. And perhaps there are those here today, either Christians who have been influenced by that worldly thinking, and you need your thinking straightened out, or perhaps there are unbelievers here today, and you are living this purposeless sort of existence because you do not know the God of purpose. Maybe even this morning there is someone who has been tempted to take away that most precious gift that God has given to you, your own life, because you are living with a sense of dread and purposelessness. Well, let me assure you, this text teaches us that our God is a God of a plan and a purpose, and that history is going somewhere. And therefore, with thick, rich, wondrous vocabulary, the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, gives to us this vast and sweeping view, this breathtaking view of history. And it is heady material, and it does require that we apply ourselves very thoroughly to this text. Now, he speaks here of a plan that he has for the ages, and there are five things that are revealed to us about that plan in this text. Five things. The first is this. God's plan is a wise plan. Now, connecting verse 8 and 9 can be somewhat difficult. Remember, this was one paragraph, no intervening mark of punctuation, and so we have to, we have to reason about where punctuation might actually appropriately be added. And I would suggest that verse 8 should end with lavished upon us, 
And then, in all wisdom and insight, begins the thought of verse 9. It seems clear to me that the wisdom and insight are related to the revelation of the mystery that we find in the passage. And so it speaks of God as being a wise God. In all wisdom and insight, he has revealed this plan. As an infinitely intelligent spirit, wisdom is not just God's infinite knowledge, but also his infinite ability to apply his knowledge, how God uses his knowledge to the best ends to fulfill his eternal purpose and plan for his people. No less than three times in the New Testament, our God is spoken of as the only wise God. Do you need wisdom? Then turn to him, for he is the only wise God. His wisdom is most discernible in his redeeming plan and purpose for us, and it was his wisdom that God has chosen to reveal the mystery of which we read in this passage. Now, let me illustrate the importance of this in some small sort of way like this. Uh, suppose that uh, there was some great crisis in the world, and you had the privilege of sitting down with the leader of uh, perhaps Great Britain or the United States or some great, uh, some great country, and he says to you, I have a plan. I know how to address this crisis in the world. Well, wouldn't you feel honored? Wouldn't you feel privileged that he had included you in hearing what that plan was? And I'm sure you would lean in and you would want to know what that wise plan was that he will execute in the world. Well, that's what God does for us in this passage. Lean in, people of God, spiritually speaking, because God says, I'm including you, my people, in the understanding of the mystery of my will and the plan that I have for the ages. Be moved by your privileges, people of God, and encouraged by the fact that God has a plan and that you are a part of it, a wise plan. And so whatever happens in this world, and when you do not understand the plan, there is one of many things that you can know about that plan. It is the plan of the wise God who is wiser than you, wiser than I, and when that plan is executed, you can know that it is according to his eternal wisdom. Well, then secondly, we also find that it is a revealed plan. Look at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And so in this passage, we find that he reveals his plan. God wants you to know his mind, not exhaustively, of course, but he wants you to understand that he has a purpose and a plan that includes you a purpose that is set forth in Christ because ultimately the plan is to glorify his son. That's been his goal all along. God's revelation is consummated in Christ. Now in verse 9, you will notice this word mystery, making known to us the mystery of his will. Let's talk about mystery for a few moments. In the gospel age, the Lord has made known a secret. He does not want his people to be in the dark. He does not want you to be unaware of the riches that he has for you in Christ. God wants to make it known. And this is the age of making known the mystery that he has revealed. To put it another way, this is the age of missions in which we go out into the world 
And we say to the nations what God had secretly planned and purposed in eternity past, he now makes known in the preaching of the word and the witness of believers to the world. This is the age of proclaiming what once was hidden but now is revealed. And in this he is showing his kind intentions, we read in verse 9. Now what then is meant by mystery? What does he mean when he speaks of the mystery? Well, a mystery in the New Testament is something that once was secret, but now is made known. Something that the human mind unaided could never have come up with that comes from the decree of God, the mind of God, but that he wants you, his people, to know and to understand and is now revealed. And in various places, especially in Paul, this word mystery is very important. I'm reminded, of course, of the great benediction in Romans 16, 25, and 26 that unpacks the theme of mystery. But the gospel in all of its fullness, that Christ has come, that the cross has made peace with God for sinners, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has taken place, that the Savior has included believing Gentiles on equal basis with believing Jews, that Jesus Christ is therefore the Savior of the world. This is the revelation of the mystery. If you'll just turn over to chapter 3, verses 4 and 9 of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 4 and 9, you have another reference uh, to this. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 9. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so the apostle says, yes, there was the proclamation of Christ by the prophets of old. There was much that was understood by them, but one thing they did not understand that we now can understand, because Jesus died for sinners and rose again, this gospel message includes the world. It includes Jew and Gentile, and that the Gentile is included with the believing Jew on an equal plane, on an equal basis. Remarkable that Gentiles are joint heirs with Jews in the blessing of salvation, saved on the same basis. This was once hidden, but now is revealed. That Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in one body through the cross, Ephesians 2.16. It's all that is unpacked in Paul's theology and all of the multifarious beauty of his, of his beautiful theology. In some, bringing all things under the headship of Jesus Christ is the revelation of the mystery. The entire New Testament era from the resurrection and ascension unto the consummation is intended. So you and I now live in the age of fulfillment. Now is the time for the proclaiming of the revealed mystery, which is now an open secret that is to be proclaimed to the nations. Fulfillment is indicated by the words, a plan for the fullness of time. You see it here in verse 10, 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. A plan from the fullness of time. The Apostle Paul uses that expression, for example, in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are born under the law. Fulfillment, then, is indicated by a plan for the fullness of times. The Messiah appeared in fulfillment of God's predetermined goal. Moreover, this means that there's a relationship between promise and fulfillment, that the entire era between the ascension of Christ and his return is intended. So people of God, read these things. Don't skip over them. Catch the vision of the entire grand sweep of the age under the mediatorial reign of Christ. That's what Paul the Apostle wants you to see and understand. It has been compared to, to an hourglass. The bottom portion of the glass is now full, the top part being, of course, empty. God's eternal decree has now been fulfilled to bring his son into the world. All of the preceding seasons and times that the Father has set by his own authority have now been accomplished. And so the time between the glorious coronation of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, until his glorious return unto judgment is what is meant by the fullness of time, the time when the mystery is to be proclaimed. Now that's our calling. That's our calling as a church. That's my calling as a minister of the word. Your calling as a witness bearer. That's why we send missionaries into the world to proclaim the mystery that now is an open secret that has been revealed. My teacher, Edmund Clowney, said to us young preacher, preacher students and, uh, and also has written, as he reflected upon Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, Dr. Clowney said, if a man cannot believe in Christ's ascension, he cannot preach the apostolic gospel or know the power of Pentecost. Such sophisticated unbelief can never know the bold urgency of Christian preaching. It is painful to hear a man who does not believe Peter's gospel seeking to preach as though in some sense he did. Yet it is even more painful to hear a man who does believe in Peter's gospel preaching as though he did not. Preaching that has lost urgency and passion reveals a loss of the eschatological perspective of the New Testament. Now that's true for me as a preacher, but it's also true for you who hold the general office of believer. It is true for you in your living. It is true for you in your praying. It is true for you in your witness bearing that all must be determined by the ascension reality of Christ and the truth that we live in the latter days. That these things call for Christ-centered preaching, but also for Christ-centered responding and Christ-centered living. That the truth of the gospel must be determinative more and more of our lives that a sense of urgency to get the message out and to live consistently with that message must characterize our living. Well, I ask, does it? Is it? 
Is that what you long for in your life? I wonder how many on Monday morning, having worshiped the Lord on Sunday, how many when you go to work on Monday or when you love your wife or your spouse or your children or when you change a diaper are living under the reality this is the fullness of time. This is a part, what I'm doing right now is a part of my witness bearing to the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is not the smallest thing that does not, that does not, is not to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus, that living in the urgency of the recognition that Jesus is coming again must determine all that I think and all that I do, are we conscious of this? Because this is precisely what Paul the Apostle wants us to understand and to become aware of. And so when he speaks in verse 10 of the plan, it helps you to look at this thick verse again as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. The word plan is the word from which we get our word economy. Originally, it means the way a household was administered. So Jesus is represented as the great steward over the house of God, and the keys are in the mediator's hand. His plan is likened to a house. And he is the one who manages his father's great plan and purpose. All of the seasons of redemption are fulfilled in Christ. What is this plan for the administering of his kingdom? Well, again, verse 10. Imagine it. The plan is, here it is, to bring all things under one head, even Christ. The plan that is amplified at the end of this chapter, in verses 20 through 22, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is that of which the apostle spoke in Colossians 1.20 that spoke of Christ as the head of the created cosmos. It is that of which Paul speaks in Philippians 2 when he says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship to the glory of God the Father. Now the verb that is used in this, uh, in this verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him is a long verb. It's anakephaliosasthai. It's a long verb that Paul uses but it means essentially to sum up. Imagine writing a book and the last chapter sums up all the various threads. Or imagine adding up figures, and right now you're saying they just don't add up for me, but at the end they all add up. It's summing up under Christ's headship, under his sovereignty. It is Christ the head of all rule and authority, Colossians 2.10. And this summing up or heading up is in the middle voice. And what that means is that it is a heading up in reference to the one who is doing the speaking. It is heading up. It is the gathering up for himself. It is a reference to God's own glory. And then we will see 
what F.F. Bruce called God's masterpiece of reconciliation, when all things in this world will have been summed up, headed up under our great sovereign head and King, Jesus Christ. And notice how comprehensive it is. Look again at verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is not universal salvation. It is universal lordship. If you are not saved, you will be subjected contrary to your will, to his lordship. But all things, literally everything, spiritual, material, even now is under the sovereign headship, the rule, the lordship of Christ, and it will be seen consummately at the end of the age. This is the mystery that none would have known until the resurrection and ascension of Christ. As Hanley Mould said, chosen angels and chosen men, glorious concentric circles around Christ, the vital son. That's where it is leading. It is, as Thomas Goodwin said, the whole birth that lay hid in God's eternal purposes and decrees. Because you see, earth was shattered to pieces in the fall and now is brought under the headship of the mediator, Jesus Christ. And the triune God has purposed it. Christ achieved it through his shed blood on the cross, and this is his promise to us. Well, you say, Pastor, it just doesn't seem that way to me. Have you looked at the news lately? Have you read the newspapers lately? It just doesn't seem that way to me. Well, Paul knows this. Read his epistles. Read in 2 Corinthians 11 how he recounts his beatings and his travels and his harsh treatment and preaching the gospel and how many rejected it. Read in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 of this light and momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this very thing. Hebrews chapter 2, 8 and 9, where he is applying Psalm 8 to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is last Adam. And he says, if we may start with verse 7, Hebrews 2, 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He tells us, Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so people of God, the New Testament tells us clearly that the experience of thinking and feeling that things just don't add up right now, that this is how we should think and feel because they don't add up. 
right now. Only do not allow this to lead you to a sense of despair or depression. Such thinking would be unbelief, not walking by faith, a failure to believe what Christ has done, is doing, and will do, a failure to look toward the certain inheritance that awaits us. Isn't that the encouragement that we find in this passage? Things don't add up now. They will. We live with already not yet directions. We have an inheritance now, but we do not live in the fullness of that inheritance now. We are still sinners, but we are raised in Christ. We still await resurrection bodies. Christ's mediatorial work has secured the heading up of all things under his lordship. Things will, let me promise you on the authority of God's word, things will add up when Jesus comes again. The line will be drawn, and all of the figures that confuse us now it will all be summed up under the headship of his total lordship over the world. The headship of Christ over all things means that the universe, it means that the world, nothing is left to drift aimlessly, that he is the mediatorial sovereign governing the entire universe, all and everything. Remarkably, we are told in verse 22, in the interests of his church, that means that no providence that befalls us is outside of the good that he is doing for his church. All things headed up by Christ. Here we have come to the heart of Paul's understanding of Christ, I do believe. Now, this is breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, it's simply amazing. It is simply breathtaking. This comprehensive plan should inform our living. We should, rather than being so focused upon ourselves, our lives, that we forget that we are a part of God's plan, keeping our eyes upon ourselves and our problems like a student over his microscope that can't see what's above him or around him. Rather than that, we should understand how privileged we are because we're leaning in now and the Heavenly Father is including you in the explanation of his purpose and plan and telling you what to do with it in life. Telling you that you live in an age of fulfillment when the mystery is revealed. And when we are taught here to view all of life in light of God's purpose in Christ and all of history in light of eternity, it is not what we see now. It is what God has promised to do that matters. Luther somewhere said, God's word and the heart of man should become one thing. So let it be. Let your heart confess the entire course of history is molded by God. Which leads us to the fourth point regarding this plan. God's plan for the ages is an invincible plan. And we see that in verse 11, if you will look at it. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the Apostle Paul gives assurance in the cosmic struggle that you are not a cog in the wheel, lost in the immensity of God's plan, but you are in union with Christ. Remember all that he has said in this chapter. Verse 3, you are in union with Christ. Verse 4, you are elect in Christ. 
Verses 5 and 6, you are predestined to be adopted in Christ. Verse 7, you are redeemed in Christ. All the way to verse 13 and 14, sealed with the Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ. And you have an inheritance and a certain future. So all things, yes, a universe-embracing plan, but God has not forgot, forgotten you in the vast configuration of it all. Now the vocabulary of purpose permeates Ephesians 1, but notice especially verse 11. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He works. What is that? That's providence. All things. Is anything excluded? No, nothing is excluded. This is the extent of his moral government over the world. After the council, what is that? Council is his eternal decree behind it all of his own will, which is the first cause of all things. And what does that mean for this plan? It means the plan is invincible, that God is not moved by whim, that he has a purpose, that he's not asleep at the wheel, but that he works the same word he uses in verses 19 and 20 of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for God's power exerted by raising him from the dead. Nothing can frustrate the purpose and plan of God. He tells us in verse 11, it is predestined. And sometimes I find Christians are frightened by that word predestined. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge, but I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I mean a fear of the unknown, a fear that perhaps this is, is something harmful rather than helpful. But no, no, no. God's plan, as we have seen, is a wise plan. God is always good. His desire and his plan for you is loving. The God you trust for the forgiveness of the cross is the same God who reveals predestination. And you really can trust the Lord. In fact, he has revealed this for the purpose of increasing your assurance and your sense of peace as you press on toward your inheritance. Perry Miller, who is certainly no admirer of Puritan theology, made the statement, it was impossible to find a disillusioned Puritan. Now, the reason for that is because the Puritans, by and large, lived in these realities of which we speak this morning. And that's what Paul is doing in this chapter. Don't be disillusioned. Be assured. God has a purpose. God has a plan. He loves you. He's all wise. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so I counsel you to read the newspaper standing up and read the Bible sitting down. Most of us, if we read the newspaper standing up, will not read long, but read long and hard in your Bible and follow the roadmap. And in the end, all the paths will make sense. People of God on this tiny little planet is fought the decisive battle between God and the devil. And as far as the history of redemption, this little planet is the center of the universe. God's invincible plan is being played out right here, right now, all around us and even in our lives. And everything is moving toward the goal of serving the Lordship of Jesus Christ 
who will return. And in light of this, we are called to live as citizens of the coming city now as those who are confident of God's invincible plan. And do you believe these things? How does it influence you? This should bring peace into our hearts and into our lives. Where was Paul when he was writing this? He was chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he writes this. He doesn't write a chapter saying, woe is me, I'm, I'm in such a terrible circumstance. No, you know, it's like, the water's fine, come and join me. Prison is fine, come and... That's the Apostle Paul, look at what God is doing in my life. Ian Murray and his extensive biography of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration from the period in the Second World War when Dr. Lloyd-Jones was ministering at Westminster Chapel. He had come there actually when the war began and it was a terrible time for London, as you know, with all of the bombing. And on a Sunday morning, he is leading uh, the long prayer, the pastoral prayer. And this was at that point toward the end of the war when the bombing actually increased because of the V-1 bombers, uh, unmanned planes that carried, each of them carried a ton of explosives. And you would hear the plane, and then when the plane would, the, the engine would cut out, there would be a few moments before the bomb would drop. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was praying a V-1 came over and cut out. And he continued to pray. The bomb dropped a few hundred yards. Remember, this is a ton of explosives. A few hundred yards from Westminster Chapel. The whole congregation rose from its seat. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones continued his prayer. And those who heard this man pray that prayer and continue on in this wonderful way came to recognize that this was a man whose life was so controlled by these realities that he was teaching us to believe that the Christian has a right to be at peace in any circumstance. My friends, even if the bomb falls on you, or me, even if we're burned at the stake. All will be well in the end. The numbers are going to total. God's purpose and plan. We do not know what will come tomorrow. Sickness, health, nations rise and fall, death, life, but we know the ultimate future and that my present is part of that plan. Yes, it is true. The Christian has a right to be at peace in any situation. But now, fifthly, it is a God-glorifying plan. For you see in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The whole purpose of it all ultimately is the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is his purpose to display the grandeur of his own character. That is to say, he has essential glory but he manifests his glory in displaying the grandeur of his own character. 
His salvation will glorify his character. It will manifest his will. His attributes will shine forth. Overcoming sin in the cross and in our lives brings glory to his name. His incredible love, the manifestation of God's glory in the salvation of sinners, but supremely the glory of his own triune nature is what this plan is all about. God's glory is the goal of his plan and purpose. And that means, since I belong to Jesus, God's glory must be the goal of my life and my plans and yours. Do you see? If God's glory is the goal of his plan, then I should seek his glory. This is why we're here. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Young people, the only thing worth living for is the glory of God. The only way you will live in this world with a recognition of purpose and meaning is if you recognize you're a part of this plan to glorify God's name. And so I encourage you to contemplate God's glory in saving you and in what awaits you and to live in the details of life to the glory of God. Now let me stress what this means for our lives. God has a wise plan, a revealed plan, a comprehensive plan, an invincible plan, a God-glorifying plan, and the Lord expects us to live accordingly. Does God have a wise plan? Then trust Him in life no matter what. Recognize that Christ is the one around whom the universe revolves, and therefore around whom my personal universe must revolve. Does God have a revealed plan? Then tell the world. It's an open secret. There's no such thing as a wordless gospel. The gospel must be spoken, and so let's live for the gospel, support the spread of the gospel, but by all means, tell the gospel. Does God have a comprehensive plan? Yes, to bring all things under Christ's headship. Then in your personal plans, bring all things in your life on the direction of his word. Does God have an invincible plan? then let's live as those who are biblically optimistic about where things are going for the long haul to the end that even when we, we, what we see appears to contradict it, we know better. Does God have a self-glorifying plan? Then let's glorify Him right here, right now in our lives and show ourselves to be in tune with His own plan to exalt his name. Because you see, people of God, this is what I want you to understand from the passage, what I'm sure Paul wants you to see. You are a part of something bigger than you are. Do you care? Don't you see, Christian, you belong to an entirely new world. And you live in the newness of life and you live in the world of resurrection and your citizenship is in heaven and your affections are on things above in union with Jesus Christ, and you belong to the age that is coming. You belong to it now. 
Does this seem vague to you? Well, part of this is because we cannot see the whole, but only the part. But when God's plan for the ages becomes vague, I encourage you to go to to the book of Revelation and read chapter 5. And by faith, see the vast throng before the throne praising the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Things don't add up now, but lift your eyes to the future Look, look, the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this chapter. Look, lift your eyes to the glorious future that awaits the people of God and now live in the light of it when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I ask you, will Christ have the last word? He will destroy his foe by the breath of his mouth and his kingdom will be everlasting, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. And then he will establish the heavenly city. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's cosmic redemption, paradise restored and more. And when you struggle in times of pain and in times of suffering and in times of hardship to see clearly what the Lord says about what he is up to, Cling to his promise. You know these words, I trust forever thy sure promise. Thereon the soul can safely build. I know that not one word thou speakest shall fall to earth as unfulfilled. The hills and mountains all may vanish. The universe collapse and flee. But not the smallest word thou givest, O Lord, shall unaccomplished be. I so often have tried to illustrate the providence of God in a variety of ways, and I hope those ways are helpful to you. Ben Shaw, Old Testament professor at Greenville Seminary, brought one to mind that I I frankly had not thought of, but I should have. You know what change ringing is, don't you? If you go to the great cathedrals, uh, you uh, will see the bell tower, and if you go up into the bell tower at a certain time of the day, there will be bell ringers change ringing. One will pull this rope, another the other. The idea to get the greatest, most beautiful sound out of all of the various bells. Dorothy Sayers and the Nine Tailors uses this as the theme of her book for Providence. And Lord Peter Wimsey is able at the end to solve the mystery in large measure because he understands change ringing. Now, the point about change ringing is that to the uninitiated, it sounds like cacophony. It doesn't sound like music, but it's beautiful music. It's highly mathematical. It is, um, it is uh, to be described in ways that because I'm not musically trained, I'm sure I cannot do. But what rhythm is selected, how many bells there are, an initiated ear can tell you what the mathematical Uh, proportions are, what's happening, can the trained ear can tell you what's going on. Now, the Apostle Paul wants us in this passage to begin to understand the ringing of the bells, that in this fallen world all seems cacophonous, but now we are regenerated, and we are able little by little, more and more, to see something, to have a glimpse of God's great glory and God's purpose and plan. 
And we can hear that there actually is beautiful noise that to others is just noise, but becomes to us the noise that we call music. Careful, mathematical, because it represents the providence of God. And one day, there will be change ringing in heaven and all that seems dissonant to us now will be melodious and we will begin to understand the things that now perplex and confuse us. Cling to the promise. That's the purpose of this passage. Paul wants you and me to cling to the passage. Cosmic redemption calls for total commitment on the part of God's people. Believer, you may listen to the news and read the paper, and indeed we feel the fallenness of the world, but we have a Redeemer. Let that dominate your thought. Let that dominate your feelings. Believer, you know exactly where history is going. Let us live that way. And God's people said, Amen.